All right. Sermon time. Jeff can go with, without a, a fancy pulpit, but I, I need this. Oh, my. Okay. We're going to try to end in a timely fashion, but uh, we're starting slightly later than usual. So, um, yeah. So, I think I've talked about this in the past before. One of the things I'm really fascinated with when it comes to preaching is this concept, is a fa- fancy word for it. It's called pericope. Has everybody ever heard the word pericope? I'd never, I've heard it once at a conference in Anaheim, actually, uh, but I love it. It's the idea of how much scripture is your basic scripture for your teaching, because it's all connected and it's all contextual. So in theory, you should, you know, read the whole thing every time, like, which would, you think this is long, just wait. Uh, so yeah, I, I remember when I heard about this, it was from Mark Tyndall. I know some of you know Mark Tyndall. He was teaching on preaching. And he was talking about pericope, and I was like, how do you, I you know, raised my hand in the, in the workshop, how do you choose, how do you know? And he's like, well, you're a pastor, ain't you? Like, that's your job, is to know and to figure it out along with the Holy Spirit and, and all that. And I was like, oh, that's not helpful at all. And I feel slapped down. But he was right. Like, there's, there's no, like, if there was a formula for it, like, it wouldn't be an interaction with the living Word of God, right? So... I think it's good sometimes when you're thinking about the scope of Scripture to draw on what what you've got and what you've learned. And so for today, I wanted to draw, uh, I have a chunk of Scripture because we're working from the unvarnished Jesus, but I wanted to look at how some of its context, and I want to use theater as my way to figure out how to do it, because I have training, formal training in theater. I have a little bit of formal training in uh, bodily stuff now, too. I'm about two-thirds of my way through my... Uh, master of uh, theology and culture degree, but I think you just learn it all at the very end when they give you the degree. Anyway, in theater, there's a thing called a French scene, and there will be a quiz on all these words, so I hope you're taking notes. A French scene is a scene that starts when somebody enters or exits and ends when somebody enters or exits. And in this chunk of the scripture that we're drawing from today, in the unfurnished Jesus, Jesus is talking, he's preaching, Okay, and then some people come in and they tell about these Galileans that have been killed. It says their blood was mixed with that of the sacrifice, which is like really dark and poetic and also vague. Um, But it, it doesn't end as a scene with Jesus responding to that right after he engages with this piece about the Galileans. And he talks about the Tower of Siloam, and we're going to read the scripture here in a second. He goes on and he tells a parable, and then after the parable, the scene changes to a new scene. So I felt like the French scene here, you have to put the parable and the piece about the Galileans together, even though it's almost an awkward transition. Let's read it. We're going to read it twice, uh, and we're going to to arm you guys up with some more stuff. So this is from Luke 13. Uh, Verses 1 through 9, I'm reading from the New Testament for everyone, which they're all for everyone, but this one is branded that way. Uh, At that moment, some people came up, so we have an entrance here, and told them the news. Some Galileans had been in the temple, and Pilate had mixed their blood with that of the sacrifices. Do you suppose, said Jesus, that those Galileans suffered such things because they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? No, 
Let me tell you, unless you repent, you will be destroyed in the same way. Harsh stuff. What about those 18 who were killed when the temple in Siloam collapsed on top of them? Do you imagine they were more blameworthy than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, let me tell you, unless you repent, you will all be destroyed in the same way. And then he told them this parable. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a fig tree in his garden. He came to it looking for fruit and didn't find any. So he said to the gardener, Look, here, I've been coming to this fig tree for three years hoping to find some fruit, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? I'll tell you what, Master, replied the gardener. Let it alone for just one year more. I'll dig all around it, and I'll put manure down in its roots. And then, if it fruits next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. And that's it. <laughs> Lots of times at the end of a parable, there's like a, 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 another word that kind of wraps it up or an explanation. He'll say like, the kingdom of God is like, he just tells this story out of nowhere in this context. And so I, I thought it was interesting. The other thing I was reminded of, the first thing that came to me when I read the parable is it's about a fig tree. And there's a weird number of fig tree stories in the Bible. Um, Matthew 7, 16, you'll be able to tell them by the fruit they bear. You don't find grapes growing on thorn bushes, do you? Or figs on thistles? Um, and we also have uh, Matthew 24, 32, learn the hidden meaning from the fig tree. When its branch begins to sprout and push out its leaves, you know summer is nearly here. And then we have the most famous fig tree story, to me at least, because it's real freaky. Uh, this I'm reading from Mark, but I should say all these stories that I'm referencing are in all the synoptic, which is to say matching Gospels. Mark 11, 12 through 14, and 20 through 21. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. From some distance away, he saw a fig tree covered with leaves and hoped to find some fruit on it. But when he came up to it, he found nothing but leaves. It wasn't yet the season for figs. That's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. He addressed the tree directly. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, he said. And the disciples heard. And then we skip. He, he does a thing in the temple. You look it up. Uh, may involve money changers and table flipping. As they were returning early in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Look, teacher, said Peter to Jesus, remembering what happened before. The tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus said, duh. No, sorry. Um, it is interesting because as the story goes on, the way that that one wraps up, Jesus says in the moment that that's about power, that it's about the power that God is giving you. But I think there's additional meanings that are readily accessible in this fig story. So what is the deal? Why all these fig stories? There's even another one. He saw one of the disciples under a fig tree, they mentioned. It's just like figs everywhere. Figs in, in the Middle East context, they're like apples. Like we have, you're the apple of my eye. Like a, a bad apple ruins a whole bunch. We have apple stories because we got apples everywhere. We don't have as many figs. Figs are... One of the first plants ever cultivated by humans. Um, Self-pollinating figs have been found all the way back to 9400 BC. Fig cultivation predates um, wheat and rye and, and barley and legumes. All the stuff, when you think about farming, I at least tend to think about like wheat and things and America corn. Um, but this, this is like the first thing that we ever grew. And the reason for that is because... The fig tree is the fastest fruiting tree in the world. They will generally fruit from seed to fruit 
within two years, sometimes as much as one year, which is insane. Anybody who knows about fruit growing knows it takes a lot of time for fruit trees to produce fruit. And so it makes sense. They make sense to cultivate in this way. And they also make sense as a metaphor for a thing that's supposed to be fruity, a thing that is supposed to produce fruit. If you want to think of what's the best symbol for that, a fig, oh, they grow figs. They grow figs all the time. They just grow. They're the best. And so I think that's why we see so much fig stuff. When I talk about fruitfulness, though, I want to give you guys another piece. We have fig as a metaphor for fruitiness or fruitlessness. We need to talk about fruit. In our context, when we think about being fruitful, we think about production. Making stuff, doing stuff, getting stuff done. Oh, are you fruitful? Yes, I made 400 units today, sir. I was very fruitful. Right? Were you fruitful? I, I did. I completed I, all of my tasks. That's not the kind of fruitful that we're talking about in the kingdom of God. Where can we look in the scripture for what's the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. This is from the English Standard Version. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It is something that is within. It is being the true self. It is being and embodying the best of what God has made you to be. To be fruitful in the kingdom, to be fruitful in the Spirit is not about production. It's about being and being who you truly are. So when we think about this fruit metaphor, we need to think in terms of true self, best self, self rooted in God, not our Western production thoughts. Okay. Now we get to talk about the other piece that we're coming from here, right? So the word judgment is not used in the parable section. They don't say, I judge this tree, but that's what he does, right? The, the master says, and rightfully so, with regards to three years of a mature fig with no figs, garbage fig tree. Chuck it. He judges it, right? And that's what it is in the metaphor. And of course, we're talking about judgment in the context of the Galileans who have, have been murdered. And in terms of those, like, what does it mean to be judged? And judgment in the kingdom, if we're thinking about fruit as being, judgment I don't see as... God's coming destruction upon you for doing it wrong. Since we're not looking to do anything we're looking to be. Judgment is inherent in not being truly alive. If you are not, uh, for whatever reason, able to be fruitful in the kingdom sense, if you aren't living in this life that God has for you, you are already experiencing destruction in the unlife that comes with not living the full life, yes? The judgment is not a, a, a blow or a bolt from a Greek god. The judgment is already happening in the life you're not living. The death that you're experiencing, the little death, the little destruction, the little crushing of not living into the full life that God has for you. So that's, it's very literal. 
in this in the, in the uh, parable, right? It's digging up a tree and throwing it away. But this is just a way to metaphorize destruction. And so I do think that, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Okay, so we have figs as a metaphor for fruitlessness. We have what true fruit is. We have what judgment is in God. Let's return to the passage. Uh, at that moment, some people came and told them the news. Some Galileans had been in the temple, and Pilate had mixed their blood with that of the sacrifices. Do you suppose, said Jesus, that those Galileans suffered such things because they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? Jesus says, do you judge them? Are they worse? Is, do you put your judgment on them? He says, no. I say, unless you repent, if, unless you turn, the word is metanoia for the Greek nerds, unless you turn to the life of God, you will be destroyed in the same way. I can't not. I have to jump ahead. There is, again, multiple meanings. It's absolutely correct that there's a prophetic warning from Jesus here about the, the destruction of Jerusalem and a prophetic and real physical warning about the dangers of a violent revolution-style life set that will lead to physical destruction and does. That's true. But also, there is a deeper spiritual destruction question at hand here as well. So he, he mentions Siloam being crushed and collapsing on top of them. He says, are, are they more blameworthy? Are they more, do you judge them? No, again, you must, uh, unless you repent, you'll be destroyed in the same way. Um, Brian Zahn says, just to, to uh, I would be remiss to, to skip him entirely. Jesus warns Jerusalem against resorting to violence by telling them that if they don't rethink war and peace according to the kingdom of God, they're all going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And this is exactly what happened a generation later. So we have in mind this terrible tragedy happens. Jesus uses it as a moment to warn people about the coming physical destruction. And then he tells this parable about judgment. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a fig tree in his vineyard. He came to it looking for fruit and didn't find any. So he said to the gardener, look here, I've been coming to this fig tree for three years hoping to find some fruit, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? I'll tell you what, replied the gardener. Let it alone for just one year more. I'll dig all around it and put on some manure, and then if it fruits next year, well and good. And if not, you can cut it down. It's easy to see harshness in the first half before the parable, and you can even see harshness in the second half, depending on who you cast in the character of master, gardener, and tree. I think it's better to see in the first half when Jesus says, repent or you'll be destroyed likewise, that tender heart. The same Jesus who says, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus says, don't be destroyed. Don't be here when the destruction comes. And don't be destroyed in yourself. Repent. Turn to the good, full, fruitful life God has for you. And I see that 
same voice here in the parable because to me, the gardener is Jesus. It'd be easy to cast the master as God the Father and then we get into a whole theological God versus Father thing, which is problematic because we know that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. So I think it's better to see the master as the expectations of the world, like to be fruitful, to be a thing. What does Jesus say? What does the gardener say? What does he bring? He says, let's take this ridiculous tree, these trees that are the metaphor for fruitiness, these trees that are the very example of quick and verdant fruiting that have done nothing for years, for three years. And I'm going to put a ton of extra resource and time into it. I'm going to give it another whole year. I'm going to dig around the roots. I'm going to give it the life-giving manure, which feel free to extend that metaphor. It needs all the crap it needs, the life that comes from death. That's God's response to this and to us. And so it's so easy, I think, during Lent, for those of us raised especially in the church, to think about like, oh, this is the time when I reflect on how evil I am and try to take a little break from bad stuff. Sometimes it takes really mundane, like ah, I'm not drinking caffeine. Um, like it's bad stuff and I'm not going to do it for Lent. But that's not the kind of restoration and healing that we're talking about here. This season of Lent is about true repentance. It's about joining to God in becoming that kingdom fruitiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I'll tell you, you can't manufacture any of those things. You can't go out and fruit it up. All you can do is allow the tender gardener to tend to you. Because I, I promise you, there's something he wants to give you and is, is giving you. And so we're partway through Lent. You can keep giving up chocolate if you want to. But what would it look like to think about what hurt in me? Why am I as a tree not producing fruit? There's a reason for it, right? None of you are congenitally bad trees. You are good trees. You are good trees. You are fruitful trees. So if there's fruit that isn't there, it's probably due to a hurt that needs healing to avoid that needs filling and to nourishment that your roots have not reached and that God wants to dig and fill for you. How does God want to love you today and in this season? How does God want to meet you? I, I want to take, as the band comes up, a moment of silence for everybody 
to just consider this tender gardener and what place, because there's room for us to grow fruit in all of these areas, but there's probably something specific that God has for you. Yes, we'll do that in a second. Um, and there's probably something, a hurt or a void that God has. So will you guys bow your heads with me? And let's just, I'm going to pray a brief here and we'll just listen for a minute. And then uh, we'll do communion as the band uh, starts to play. Holy Spirit, thank you for your love and presence. I just pray that you would reach out to us now and let us know our hurts that need healing and the places that need filling and the places you want to meet us, God. That you would be specific and know, let us know where we can make ourselves open to these things. That we can allow our safe vulnerability with you, God, to restore us so that we may be living our true kingdom fruitful lives in you. We'll wait on you now. God, for those who are feeling a little hopeless, who are maybe not so sure that you're really there or that you really care or feel like they've done something that, that is too much of a barrier, I just pray that you would leap across the void of that connection, the spark of your love, and that they would feel a sense of hope and feel a sense of connection in Jesus' name right now. And if there's anybody here who wants to, whether again or for the first time, invite God's nourishing, gardening interaction in their life to turn to God, I, I just, I pray a blessing on you. And I just pray, you just say to God, I, I, want, I want you in my life. I want your way. I want the full, rich life that you have for me. And I encourage you to come up and get some prayer in a minute.